You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. the next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you, the DU Podcast. Welcome to the show, everybody. I'm Mallory Murphy. And I'm Katie Burke. And we're sitting in for Mike and Chris today. If you love duck calling and you love history, then you're going to really enjoy our next guest. Mike Lewis is an author, a collector of Arkansas duck calls, and the current chairman of the board of the Call Makers and Collectors Association of America. How are you today, Mike? Doing fine. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, first, thanks for having me. Uh, I'm 56 years old. Was uh, I'm a lifelong Arkansas resident uh, from a little small town called Whitehall, which is about 40 minutes south of Little Rock. Uh, grew up as a duck hunter, hunted my entire life, and just kind of fell into collecting duck calls almost as an accident, uh, the way a lot of people do. You, As a duck hunter, you know, you will uh, get one call and then you'll be searching for that holy grail of another call and you'll buy another call. And before you realize it, you've got a handful of calls. And then some of us take that handful of calls onto kind of the obsession level where <laughs> we wind up with a whole lot more than a handful of calls. And that's kind of what I did. You graduated with a master's in history and historic preservation from Wake Forest. How has that informed your interest in call collecting and call making history in Arkansas? Well, I think it, it, for me personally, it had a huge effect because I always had this, you know, from a from being a small kid, just I've always had the interest in history. And then when I uh, went further with 
the preservation of artifacts and just museum education and the like, uh, I didn't pursue that because at the time there really weren't many jobs available. So I worked for a few years and then went to law school. And that's a path I wound up taking. But I always had that kind of interest in history. And, you know, some people are collectors and some people aren't. I grew up in a family. My mom and dad didn't collect anything. I mean, it just, you know, they did not acquire things for the sake of owning them. And I mean, even as a kid, I I mean, I was a baseball card collecting fool, and I always liked gathering objects. And some people do, some people don't. I'm not sure exactly how I got that gene and where I got it from, but uh, academic studies obviously impacted my interest in preserving duck calls. And I mean, for me, I've got uh, somewhere around 2,000 duck calls, which is just a stupid amount. I mean, it is just more than, I mean, it's just crazy. The majority of them are on display in my house. And, uh, you know, I don't keep them locked in a safe. I have them out on display, kind of like they are in the museum at, at the DU Waterfowl Heritage Center. They're all out and I look at them every day and it's just, uh, for me, I wouldn't have a collection like that if I kept it locked up. I, I have it out to enjoy it and I like showing it to people and I like talking to other collectors about it. And I like it when people come over to my house and they see these shells filled with these little pieces of wood and they're like, what the heck is this? And so I like telling them about it. Your book, Call in the Wild, is about the history of Arkansas duck calls. Tell us how you went from a call collector to an author. Uh, probably uh, in the late 1990s, uh, I had hunted, like I said, my entire life. And I actually saw uh, an old Alvin Taylor duck call in an antique store. And I looked at it and thought, that's really cool. And, you know, it's a call that I knew from when I was a kid. And I picked it up. I paid $100 for it, which at the time seemed like an exorbitant amount. But it was a really nice call made out of Corian, which is a kitchen countertop material. And so it was kind of unique. Took it, was really proud of it, and showed it to my wife. And she's like, you paid $100 for that? And it kind of went from there to where uh, I started scouring antique malls and, you know, various places. Uh, eBay was a, a good spot early on where you could find uh, a lot of uh, collectible duck calls and just really all kinds of stuff hunting related. And I just became interested in the history behind duck calls, when they were invented, uh, you know, who made them, what kind of people made them. Uh, you know, obviously growing up, you, you had to learn to use a duck call in Arkansas. I mean, it was almost a requirement, especially if you, you know, you hunted in the places where I hunted. And so essentially from that, uh, I started just buying any old duck call that I could find and eventually realized that you know, you just can't collect everything. So I started focusing on just Arkansas-made duck calls because we have such a wonderful tradition of duck call making in Arkansas. Some of the most famous makers, some of the most artistic makers, some of the best sounding duck calls ever. As I just collected more and more and focused more and more on Arkansas calls, I realized that that link to the early call making history was fading away and that every year it seemed like as I collected from the late 90s on, it seemed like we lost more and more older call makers. 
or we lost a link to someone that was a call maker around the uh, turn of the 19th century, someone that knew that call maker that may have died in the 1940s or 1950s, you wouldn't have any more information ever about that call maker. And so uh, probably around 2010, I started actively researching and trying to formulate like research files about call makers and their history, what they did, when they did it, how they made the calls, uh, kind of where their place in, in history was. And I kind of had a vague idea of writing a book, but mainly I just wanted to preserve and document that history. The more I gathered, the more I decided I really needed to write it down and to ultimately share it with other people. And that's essentially kind of where Calling the Wild started. Some of these calls are considered folk art. Why do you think it's so important to preserve and tell the stories of these pieces of wood that folks make to lure in ducks? I think it's just a part of our American heritage. It's, it's a uniquely American art form. I mean, it's kind of like decoy making. You know, I think uh, decoy making in the United States is a, a slice of Americana. Duck call making is is the same way. I mean, there is there's obviously no uh, benefit to calling a duck if your duck call has carved ducks or a carved rattlesnake on it, or if it's checkered uh, in a certain way, or if it's designed to where it's stylish. And it's to me that's that's what is one of the most fascinating things about early call makers. You need just a smooth piece of wood and some instrument. You know, you've got your barrel and you need that as the instrument to hold the reed to make the sound. And there was never any reason to make it stylish. I mean, it was it's a utilitarian object to call a duck and no need for it to look stunningly beautiful. Yet you had these people that had no artistic training, generally were not wealthy people, didn't have a lot of leisure time on their hands. They were working for a living and sometimes just barely scraping by. But they put that little added extra uh, flair to what they did in order to make it not just functional, but beautiful, too. Every collector has their own particular interest. But what about these calls intrigue you? My collecting has kind of taken a little bit of a strange path because when I decided I wanted to write my book, I wanted to get a call from every person that I could find out ever made a call in Arkansas. And so that went from the big names like Ed St. Mary and J.T. Beckhart and Pop Pickle and John Jolly and people like that that are famous and that's calls are extremely expensive, all the way down to some farmer in Harrisburg, Arkansas that made 25 calls in the 1930s. So for me, I would get excited when I found that really rare unknown call. And it might not be as historically significant, but it would be so rare and so difficult to find that I would really get excited about a lesser call, but because it was rare and it was a, it kind of fit into the scheme of what I was trying to accomplish as far as a comprehensive collection of Arkansas duck calls. All right, Mike, let's talk about some of the most notable call makers from Arkansas. How about you talk about a few of your favorites? Uh, yeah, it's kind of like picking your favorite kid. It's really tough to do, <laughs> you know. I mean, there are, uh, Arkansas truly has some of the 
most significant, most artistically beautiful, just stylish duck calls ever made. Uh, some of my favorites would be uh, by the father of Arkansas duck calls, J.T. Beckhart. Uh, Beckhart was a market hunter, lived in northeast Arkansas in the Big Lake area, and made just some fantastic uh, calls, checkered, carved, and just really stunningly beautiful works of art. Uh, Ira Green Ferguson from down in South Arkansas near Hamburg uh, made another beautiful, really stylish call. Uh, G.D. Kenny, uh, who lived in Memphis, but also was the caretaker at the Five Oaks Club in Hughes, Arkansas, made a beautiful duck call. We fight over John Jolly, who was uh, born in Pine Bluff, Arkansas, lived in Pine Bluff for a while and then moved to uh, West Memphis, ultimately Memphis, and then moved back to Arkansas. Uh, between the Arkansas makers and the Tennessee makers, we fight over John Jolly and we fight over G.D. Kenny. And, uh, you know, Memphis and obviously its proximity to Arkansas, I think we can, I think we can share. It's hard to believe that the Arkansas style call wasn't around forever. It came about right around the turn of the century. Nowadays, it's the standard design for duck calls. What inspired makers to create this new type of call? Well, your first duck calls were, if you're familiar with the tongue pincher mm -hmm. style of call, that was probably the first duck call ever made. And it was more of a squawker and didn't really sound like a, what we consider a duck call to sound like today. The, uh, the early makers in Illinois developed uh, different styles of making a call. And then, of course, around Real Foot Lake, you had the Real Foot Lake style call, which essentially we use to refer to a call that has a separate wooden wedge block, a metal reed, and then a, a, that goes in a friction fit into the barrel to hold the reed in place. The Arkansas style, as you've said, it's a one-piece stopper, but it has a, a cork wedge and a, and a reed that fits onto the tone board. It's obviously a much simpler construction and much more stable. You know, I mean, it's you, you take apart a real foot style call in a blind and you're very likely to lose either your reed or your wedge block and then it's useless. And an Arkansas style call, it, it'll all stay together, obviously, and which is easier to use. And kind of that developed more of what we consider the, the modern sound with, a, with either initially a hard rubber reed or uh, now almost exclusively mylar, and uh, just a simpler way to skin that cat, basically. Do you sell any of the calls in your collection or keep them for yourself? Like, do you dabble in any of the trading? Well, for a long time, I was kind of the black hole of collecting. And it just, you know, I bought and I never sold. But uh, interestingly enough, when I put these calls on display, uh, at the DU Museum, it kind of made me reassess because I had all these gaps where I took all these calls down and it kind of made me reassess what I had collected. And so I've actually traded some and sold a few recently, but I haven't sold many. Do you ever blow any of the calls from your collection? Yeah. Do you take any of these prized possessions hunting with you? I've not taken any of like the, the Beckarts and the Ira Green Ferguson calls. But two years ago, I hunted with uh, uh, a ham bone call made by Howard Amadon probably in the 1960s. And it's really not, I mean, it's a, 
from that era, you didn't get the volume from the call that you get with today's call. So it's a softer, more mellow tone, but it was effective and it was fun and it was great to hunt with it. The hand bone I took just because I had one that just sounded just so sweet. I mean, it just had just this really good mellow tone and and sounded great. And that's, and plus it wasn't just, you know, it wasn't like it was a $5,000 duck call. So if, if I happened to lose it, it wouldn't have been the end of the world. Do you have a favorite call just in general? Uh, my favorite, my favorite calls for contemporary makers were made by Billy Ray Starks. And Billy and I became friends back in the early 2000s. He, Billy made the Rebel Duck Call, and his calls won, I think, two world championships and two junior world championships and multiple state and regional championships. And I met Billy back in the early 2000s just from calling him up and asking if he had any calls for sale. And so I bought one call from him. I really liked it. And then I bought some more and then I bought some more. And uh, eventually he and I became friends and I spent hours in his shop and I had decided, you know, I'm buying all these duck calls and collecting all these calls and I'll learn how to make a call myself. Well, back 15 years ago, it's really, you know, it was almost pre-internet explosion. And so you had these you had these call makers that learned how to make calls either totally on their own or were mentored by some old-time call maker. And they weren't nearly as free to share information. You know, they learned it the hard way, so they wanted you to either learn it the hard way or you weren't going to learn it at all. Now you can just go to the internet and Google how to make a duck call and you get these tutorials and show you step-by-step how to do it. But somebody like Billy Starks that started in the late 60s, he just figured out how to do it on his own, which is, in my opinion, pretty amazing. But as he and I became friends, I'd spend time in his shop and I'd watch him make duck calls. But when it came to the important part, making the insert, the thing that makes the noise, he'd always shoo me out of the shop. He wouldn't, I mean, but I kept going and I kept hanging out with him and we'd have lunch and, you know, we got to be friends. And eventually he started giving me pointers. And I can remember the first duck call that I ever turned was just a horrible looking piece of wood. And I mean, it just, it sounded like a kazoo, but I got it to quack. And I jumped in my car and I drove down to Stuttgart and I was so proud. And I took it to Billy and I said, look, look, I got one. He blew it and just kind of hung his head and shook it and said, come on in the shop. And he took it in the shop and he took the insert out and he got a file and he started filing on the tone board and blew it a couple times. And all of a sudden it sounded more like a real duck. And so he could tell then that I was kind of serious about learning how to actually make a call. And so over the next eight or 10 years, he'd give me pointers here or there. And he was a just a, a great source of teaching someone to do something. And it was really kind of uh, a unique situation. He taught a few people how to make calls over the years, but it was never, with those old time makers, it was never information that was freely shared. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. 
Learn more at ProPlantSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside. It's just a different era. All right, Mike, I've got to ask. What is your holy grail call? What is the one call that keeps you awake at night saying, I need to add this to my collection of 2,000 duck calls? For me, without doubt, it would be uh, one of the calls that J.T. Beckart made that uh, is pictured on the cover of my book. It's a carved call, and it's got, uh, I think, an alligator, uh, uh a shotgun. Uh, I can't remember what else on it. It's got a carved rattlesnake going around the stopper. And the story is that uh, Beckard had three granddaughters and he made a call for each of the three grandchildren. One is owned uh, by the Jay Coochie collection, which is just a phenomenal collection of calls. Uh, Jay passed away, I think it's probably five or six years ago now and has just a phenomenal collection. He bought one of the calls uh, and a fellow by the name of Lynn Goldman that lives in uh, Aurora, Colorado, outside of Denver has another one. So two of the three calls, and they're, they're all three are purportedly made the same way with the same carvings and the same snake going around the stopper. Two of the calls are, are in collections and we know where they are. And the third one's still floating around somewhere. And I just have this vision that it's in somebody's drawer at a house and it's just sitting there and they have no idea what they've got. And it would be, it would be the pinnacle. And it's, and it's the, it holds the distinction of being the highest price call ever sold at auction. And it sold for a little bit over a hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. And I actually had a collector three or four years ago that told me that he had a lead on the third one and that he was going to look at it. And uh, of course I told him, if you find it, I would pay you a stupid amount of money for it. And uh, I talked to him later and he said uh, he did go out somewhere in the boondocks, thought he was going to get robbed before he could look at the call. But once he looked at the call, he realized that it was just a replica. 
Where do you think the future of call collecting is headed? I think it's equally bright. And one of the things that I think is a distinguishing characteristic between call collecting and decoy collecting is that the absolute numbers of decoys to collect, uh, that availability is much greater than it is for duck calls. Because, you know, if you if you go hunting, you might carry two dozen decoys, a hundred decoys, but you're only going to have one call. Uh, in the old days, one call. Today, maybe two, maybe three. So it's a lot smaller uh, volume of things that you can collect. And I think as far as, as collecting, there's a, there's a strong interest in duck calls. It's, uh, we haven't reached the level of prices that decoys have reached. I mean, you know, it's, it's routine for, uh, a decoy to sell for six figures or more. And, you know, it's only happened once in the history of duck calls, but we have, a a, a strong core group of collectors. And one of the things that's interesting about call collecting is that because they're so rare and so difficult to get, collectors tend to hang on to them forever. And, you know, like if, if I'm going to trade or sell a call, it's virtually never going to be an old call, a, a valuable collectible call. It would be something that I consider more contemporary. So, what we have in call collecting, we have several members that uh, of the call collecting community that have wonderful collections. I mean, you know, worth huge sums of money that are older. And so I think uh, at some point, some of those collections will come onto the market the way it has in decoy collecting. I mean, you know, when you look at Guyette and Dieter auctions and Copley auctions, it seems like they are constantly cycling through the collection of so-and-so or such-and-such. And those are people that started collecting decoys, say, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and they've either passed away or they've reached an age where they want to divest themselves of some of their collection. And so I think that uh, if that happens in call collecting, I think it would be beneficial because it's difficult for a younger person to get these really old vintage calls because there's just so few of them. And the prices are, the prices sometimes make it prohibitive for someone that's younger to collect them. And so I think it would be, obviously it'd be good if we had more of the the great old calls to come onto the market to give people a chance to kind of get into the hobby. On the flip side of that, um, there are a lot of calls that are lower priced, whereas decoys, there are not. Uh, there's, you know, a big discrepancy in that. Um, in the future, do you see those lower priced calls rising in the same way that decoys have? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I can tell you that like, uh, I told you at the start about the Alvin Taylor call that I bought that kind of sparked my interest in truly thinking of collecting duck calls versus being a duck hunter that just kind of acquired some by mistake. I bought that call in 2000 or 99, whenever I bought it and I paid a hundred dollars for it. And it's probably a $1,500 call now. So what, uh, what you have now, you have just a wonderful group of contemporary call makers that do some of the best checkering, some of the best carving that you could ever imagine. 
and you can collect those calls. And a lot of people collect more of the contemporary stuff. And for me, what I consider to be contemporary, that's stuff from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. But, you know, that's uh, that was 20 years ago contemporary calls. So 20 years in the future, some of these guys that are making these really cool calls now, they'll be super collectible, and they're collectible now. I think that's what happens with a lot of collectibles like that is you collect what you grew up with. And, you know, like me, I grew up with Chick Majors, Hambone, calls like that. But I developed an interest in the older stuff. But a lot of people will focus on the calls that they grew up with. With the modern call makers and what you see going through the competitions, you see a lot more decorative calls than you do see functional ones. And Why do you think that is, Mike? Uh, the Call Makers and Collectors Association, we uh, sponsored multiple calling contests. And there's one that is in conjunction with uh, what used to be called the Midwest Decoy Association. Now I think it's the National Decoy Association. For years it was outside, it still is outside of Chicago. And we sponsored one contest there that is decorative. And it's purely, I mean, it needs to quack and sound moderately like a duck, but it is focused upon carving, checkering, artistic design. We have another contest uh, at Real Foot Lake in October that is based on sound. We sponsor and participate in the uh, National Wild Turkey Federation calling contest in Nashville in February, and that is a blend of uh, craftsmanship, workmanship, and sound, and it's judged based on these categories. What I find is that some of the best contemporary makers as far as sound also now uh, applies much of their artistic abilities towards making a beautiful, cool-looking duck call as they do to making it sound great. And so it's not, uh, I guess to some extent, it is still kind of rare to have a call that is uh, artistically beautiful and, uh, you know, perfect carving, beautiful checkering, and sounds wonderful also, but it's not as rare as it was in the old days. Because we have, uh, I mean, this is, I mean, it's a, another golden age of duck calls. I mean, there are truly some fantastic call makers alive today. If some of our listeners wanted to get into call collecting, how do you think they would get started? Probably the, the first way to do it would be to join the Callmakers and Collectors Association of America. It's a nonprofit organization, and it's comprised of call collectors and call makers. So you have contemporary call makers that are members, and then you have people that collect contemporary calls and people that collect vintage calls and people that are interested in history. Uh, it's a good way to meet other collectors, uh, to learn about the hobby, uh, we publish a quarterly newsletter and we have call making competitions based on both uh, appearance and sound. And we have uh, annual and uh, more frequent get togethers where you can uh, swap calls, trade calls, buy calls or sell calls. That's we're really the only organization that focuses on call collecting. But other than that, I think you just. Uh, you can obviously buy books like Calling the Wild. Uh, and there are other books. Howard Harlan's written two books on the history of duck calls. Uh, Bob Christensen wrote a book on the history of Illinois duck calls. 
Darren Fontenot wrote a book uh, about Louisiana calls. And so you can you can buy those books and you can kind of see what's out there and see uh, how to identify and to possibly guide you in the way that you collect. And there there are just a myriad of ways to collect. You can do like what I did, which was focus just on one state. I know some people that focus just on one era. They don't collect any calls that were made after 1950. I know some people that collect only uh, what are called water label calls. And that's a specific kind of label that was used in the 40s and the 50s. And it was a water transfer label. So we call them water labels. And they're, they're a really specific time frame. And you can build just an incredible collection by just focusing narrowly or as widely as you want. Say I'm a rookie call collector. I'm 28 years old. I've got a little bit of money in my pocket, but I got to pay my bills. What are some current call makers that are likely to be future legends that I can start looking into and possibly start buying their calls? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, you know, recently, uh, well, Butch Rickenbach died several years ago. You have uh, ready availability of rich and tone calls. Uh, Billy Starks died in January of this year. Uh, Billy never had the volume of calls made uh, that Butch did. But his calls are out there, and they are extremely collectible. Uh, Rick Dunn, and I've named three Arkansas guys. You know, Rick Dunn still, you know, Rick's not hand-making calls anymore, but you can still find handmade calls. Those are three guys that are kind of uh, from that generation that started making calls in the 60s, 70s, and and on. Uh, As far as contemporary makers, uh, gosh, uh, Brad Samples makes a wonderful call, just wins uh, consistently at the NWTF competition. Uh, Ronnie Turner makes a fine duck call. Uh, Brad's from South Carolina. Ronnie's from Tennessee. Uh, Collierville, I think, near here. Uh, John Kep from Missouri makes a fantastic call. Brian Byers from Illinois. Uh, Troy Taylor from uh, near Seattle makes a fantastic call. There's, uh, I mean, there truly are just, I mean, there are literally a dozen more guys that I could name that make a real, and it's, that make a really good sounding call. And in all honesty, it's easier to make a really good sounding call now than it was 30 years ago, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, just because the tooling's better and the knowledge is easier to acquire. Uh, Josh Raggio, that's another one that makes a fantastic call. Yeah, Josh really does. And a fantastic guy and makes a great duck call. Is there a certain type of wood that call collectors seek more than others? Not really. Most of your early calls were made from uh, either cedar because it was readily available and it's easy to carve and it's easy to fashion. Uh, Walnut, again, readily available. And then Bodoc, which uh, depending on where you where you live, you can call it hedge, bodoc, bodiark, horse apple. I mean, it's got a million different names, but it's a it was a wood of choice for many call makers. And those are kind of the three that that if you find an old call, that's probably what it's going to be made out of. Occasionally, you would find uh, some call maker that would use mahogany, but that was considered more of an exotic wood. Now they can make them out of anything. I mean, if you can turn on a lathe, you can make a duck call out of it. Yeah. Where can we find your book, Mike? 
It's listed on Amazon. Uh, it's for sale at Max Prairie Wings and at the Rich and Tone Duck Call Shop in Stuttgart. It's available in some bookstores in Little Rock, but uh, I haven't decided whether to reprint it or not, and I'm down to just a very few copies. Mike, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I might start having me a little collection. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. Special thanks to our guest today, Mike Lewis. Thanks again to my co-host, Katie Burke, for talking calls with us today and to our producer, Clay Baird, for keeping us on track. As always, thanks to all of you for tuning in and for supporting wetlands conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit www.ducks.org slash dupodcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. the next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside.